On this episode, I'm in the room with Josh Reich discussing burnout and breathing room. Welcome to In the Room, episode number 47. I'm Ryan Hughley, and if you're listening for the first time, I'm the founding and lead pastor of Redemption Bible Church just outside Chicago. I'd love to stay connected online, so you can visit my blog at ryanhughley.com to find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. This week, I'm in the room with Josh Reich. He's the lead pastor of Revolution Church in Tucson, Arizona, and he's the author of a new book called Breathing Room, Stressing Less and Living More. In my conversation with Josh, we discuss common factors that squeeze out our breathing room, the importance of holistic health, and learning from the strengths of others. This was another great conversation, so come on in the room for my chat with Josh Reich. Josh, thanks so much for coming on in the room. Really appreciate it. Wanted to have you on for a while and excited to talk about your new book, Breathing Room. Uh, But before we get to that, if you could just give people who aren't familiar with you a sense of who you are and uh, tell me just a little bit about your background, where you're from. I know you're out in Arizona now, uh, but is that where you were born? No. So great to be here. Really excited to be a part of In the Room. And so been a been a big listener for a while now. And so, no, we have lived in Tucson, Arizona now for 10 years. Okay. And I originally grew up in the Northeast. So I grew up about an hour west of Philadelphia. And I um, spent almost my entire life in the Northeast until we moved out here. And we have five kids. Uh, ages 10 to 3, so we have a pretty rowdy house. Four of them are boys, and so we are always on the verge or experiencing UFC. And uh, my wife recently showed them parkour videos, and so now we're practicing that off the furniture. And so uh, just a lot of fun out here. So when we moved out here, um, we moved out here to plant a church, and so Revolution Church started a little over seven years ago with 12 other people. And God's just been real good to us in just a hard city to plant in. Seven um, percent of our city goes to church twice a month, and so it's a it's a beautiful city. It's a very diverse city, um, a, a lot of different beliefs and worldviews, and so it's it's a fun place to do ministry for sure. Yeah, tell me about how church planting came to be for you. That's still a really kind of uh, shrouded in mystery for a lot of people, how someone ends up. I mean, I know like when I first learned about church planting, I'd grown up in the church and I'd never even considered the fact that new churches got started. I just, I think I just always assumed they'd been here since Jesus was here. And uh, so that was a surprise to me. So what was that? Did you have some kind of really like clear word from God, a sense over time? How did church planting come onto your radar? Yeah. So when I was 21, I did an internship at Willow Creek and I was, um, the summer before my senior year of college. And so just being on the inside of that church for four months was just incredible. But I still remember sitting at the leadership summit, um, at their church that summer and just hearing Bill Hybels, it was, um, 2001. So I think it was like the first year that he did his prevailing church talk, You know, that he's probably done a million times since then. And it was the first time I ever heard him talk about, you know, the church being the hope of the world and and all the things that that he says about that. And I just remember sitting there thinking, I want to do that. That, that's exactly, and just having this overwhelming sense that if I didn't do that, um, I would be sinning and yeah. it would be falling short of what God had for me. And so that was 21, but it took me eight years to actually plant a church. And it was a long eight years. It was a lot of growing um, just in my heart 
and just things that needed to be sanded down um, for me. And so I I felt in those eight years like they were wasted years. Um, But looking back now, um, they were the most important years to our church and to my leadership. And so I I meet a lot of guys who are just frustrated and they want to be you know, they want to be on that stage every week now and they want to, you know, start that church and they're, and they're just tired of waiting because they know more than the lead pastor that they work for. And I would just encourage you to just be patient. You know, God's not wasting your days right now. Um, he's not wasting that time at all. And, um, and, and it's going to bring a lot of fruit for That's sure. Good. Can you tell me a little bit about your, just what your church background has been? Because <clears throat> one of the things I've appreciated about you from a distance is, I think that you've really appropriately modeled what it looks like to be able to learn from tribes and thinkers that you differ with on some theological issues. I know like there's going to be some, some really key tenets of faith, um, or secondary tenets of faith that revolution is going to differ with say a Willow Creek, you know, that you interned at at 21. So tell me about what that's been like. It's just, I mean, just, I mean, yeah, I think we both know sure. there's there's a lot of people within sort of the young reformed tribe that can't learn outside of that tribe. Yes. So I guess the personal way to form the question would be, how come you can? Yeah. So, I mean, I grew up in a crazy conservative church Okay. Um, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where there's Amish people. It's a really conservative area. It doesn't get um, much more conservative than Amish. Yes. And yeah. so I went to a Mennonite high school. Okay. And so, I mean, my, like my first Bible teacher was a river brethren with a beard, like down to here, you wow. know, or hipsters were doing it. And yeah. so, um, but I've always just had a very questioning personality and just a very curious personality. And my parents really, um, and just my extended family really encouraged me to ask hard questions. And we would, um, my parents and I would, we'd have it out about theology and beliefs through high school. And, um, and so for me, it was just something that seemed normal. And then, um, went to a really conservative Bible college where you had to wear, um, khakis every day and you were not allowed to wear sandals or flip-flops without socks. And so, I mean, it was real conservative. That in and of itself should be sinful. (laughs) And so, you know, I was always, um, just very curious and my mentor, there, um, to this day has been one of the biggest influences in my life. Um, but he just really encouraged that. And he was the one who actually set me up with Willow Creek. Okay. And, um, and so just having the opportunity to be there. Um, but then when I went to a seminary, one of my first professors was Brian McLaren. Wow. And so it was right before, you know, he wrote the book. And, and so it was interesting watching that happen. Um, but then talking with him, you know, and hearing his struggles. And so when we joined Acts 29 as a church and they asked who has had the biggest influence on my theology, my answer is Brian McLaren and Bill Hybels because they challenged me to think through what do I really personally believe. Hmm. And, um, and, and I think that was really helpful. And it's really just, it's sad to me, especially because I come from a, I'm very comfortable in systems for a church. Uh, I think systems care for people well and love people well and yeah. connect people well. And it, it's really just sad a lot of times when I meet guys and they'll say, well, you know, I, I'm not going to read that guy's book. You know, he's not reformed. You know, didn't he misquote the Bible? And I'm like, well, I don't know, maybe, but he knows something you don't. Yep. And, um, and you can find wisdom in all kinds of places if you're looking for it. And so I, mm-hmm. I just think there's, you really, 
you really cap your potential as a leader and as a church if you just read people you agree with. Yeah. Well, I mean, know that the, I could not agree with you more on that, by the way. I think, you know, one of the things that we really try to do within the room is to talk to, I don't agree with, I mean, I don't think that I agree with anyone on everything. Yeah. And, um, but I had a really diverse, like I was in, grew up in the charismatic church, the seeker sensitive church. And because of that, I've talked about this on here, I think before, but I've just, there's always been, these are people, not caricatures that we're talking about. And there really are people from a diverse range of theological convictions that all actually love Jesus and actually read their Bibles and are trying to be faithful. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't have deep convictions and we shouldn't dialogue and discuss and disagree, but um, we should be able to learn. And uh, so, for what it's worth, man, I've really appreciated that about you and your blog. And uh, and you even quoted Andy Stanley a couple times in your book, which I just thought was phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you you know, I, I, I've gotten emails about that. Sure. I'm sure that's actually the yeah. first thing and I thought was interesting is that, so when I was in seminary, uh-huh. um, I took a group of leaders, um, just people my age who were young, 20 somethings and Brian McLaren's first book came out. Yeah. And so we went down to his church. Um, you know, I wanted to see what it was like, you know, what, what does this emerging church? Cause that was when it was all happening. What does it yeah. look like? And I walked up to him after the service and there were five of us there and he took us out to lunch and spent four hours answering any question that we had. Yeah. And I sat there and it was very eye opening to me because he was incredibly winsome. And I feel like, um, a lot of leaders, um, we just come across sometimes as jerks instead of winsome. And I wonder if the gospel would go further if we were a little bit more winsome in our leadership and how we communicated things. So, yeah. That's good. Well, tell me a little bit about so much of the of the book is your story, yeah. which is then obviously very interwoven with the story of revolution. So tell me a little bit about, I mean, you mentioned how many years old is the church now? So we're seven years old. Now. Seven years old now. You're in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, I think you told me beforehand the churches, you guys are really intentional about trying to reach between the ages of 20 and 40. But tell me a little bit about what are what are kind of some of the cultural staples of revolution? Yeah. I mean, so for us, the staples of revolution really come out of a lot of the things in the book that I learned. I mean, we are a very simple church. Um, We really um, value um, health and longevity. Mm -hmm. Um, Because one of the reasons I wrote the book was I just kept running into all these Christians who are just tired, who are run down, who haven't let go of past hurts, who continue to struggle with things that they thought they were free from. And, um, you know, they're in debt and and just all these things. And then you meet the leaders of their churches and they're usually worse off. Right. And, you know, I kept, you know, so for me, anytime I preach a sermon, it doesn't matter what topic it is, I will always get back to John 10 and how Jesus said, I came to give you life. And I just started to look around and thought, man, no one's really experiencing that. No one's really doing that. You know, I don't know how many people who are followers of Jesus or pastors would say, yeah, like, I am experiencing an overflowing life in Jesus. Yeah. And so for us, we have, um, because when we started our church, I was 300 pounds okay. uh, when we started our church. And so in the first 18 months, I lost 130 pounds Wow. and really just made a lot of changes, um, to my own life and my own heart. Um, 
you know, trying to understand what it looks like to not only be healthy physically, but also what what's the relationship to your heart? Because there is an enormous relationship between where your heart is and, and what your health is like. Yeah. So tell me, the book's called Breathing Room, Stressing Less and Living More, and it is a very personal book for you. And so tell me what was kind of the, what was the breaking point for you or or what was the moment where you, you kind of like, you felt like I got to write this book. Yeah. I, for me, it's always been a goal to write a book. Um, and it's always just been something that I had kind of on this bucket list, you know, sitting out there. And so probably four years ago, I felt like I was at a place where I finally had a message that I felt I could communicate not only with conviction, but be able to give some handles to move forward with it. And I had had enough distance from some of the things that we discussed in the book, um, to be able to make that change. And so four years ago, we, uh, we made as our new year's resolution, you know, we decided our, for the next six months, you know, um, one of the things I talk about in the book is deciding what's the most important thing for you or your family in the next two to six months. And so we set out, um, for six months that I was going to write a book and we were going to see if it happened. And if in six months there wasn't any movement on it, then it just wasn't the time. And we were just going to put it on the back burner and just through, um, just a lot of twists and turns, you know, God was gracious in that to, to let it happen. Yeah. So what was, so tell me just a bit about what, what the book's about. What is breathing yeah. room? Uh, define that if you would. And then what yeah. is it exactly you're trying to, uh, to, to help with in the book? Yeah. I mean, the big, the big thing I'm trying to help people with is to make it to the end of their life and be happy and, and to, to enjoy where they are. Um, you know, one of the things that, um, that Jesus says, I love the message version in Matthew 11, where Jesus talks about us taking his yoke and his, and giving our burdens to him in the message version. It says that when we follow Jesus, we'll learn how to live freely and lightly. Hmm. And so for me, my, the book was really written as a way to not only share my story, but to be helpful to my church. Um, and so really just out of the messages that I've given at our church, And so breathing room is saying, okay, like when you look at your relationships in your calendar, do you have, is it a sustainable pace? Because for example, with that, what ends up happening is we have one busy season and then all of a sudden we roll right into the next busy season. And pretty soon we have a lifestyle and a habit instead of, well, this is just a busy month. You know, it's now become a busy year and an overwhelming two years. And so, you know, and then you look at just breathing room with finances and, you know, breathing room when it comes to your health or even relationships, what you've let go of. I mean, most people are just suffocating in life and are so weighed down in life because of hurts that happened 20 years ago that they've never faced, they've never dealt with. And I got an email from a woman and she said, you know, after reading your book, she said, I know exactly why I can't do silence. She said, because I'm afraid what I'm going to hear when I'm silent. Wow. So I'm afraid of what's going to come up. Yeah. And, um, and to me, that's really the heart behind writing it is to say, you know, Jesus came to give you life and, and it's, it's amazing, you know, and it's overflowing and it's abundant and all those words that are used to describe it in John 10, 10. And, you know, but it gets snatched away 
pretty easily, you know, when we're, when we're not intentional with it. So that, that's the heart behind it. That's the story behind it. Yeah. So it, it seems, tell me if this is fair, but it seems like you're writing to people who are either in the midst of, or right on the verge of burnout in, in some area of, I mean, sure. Uh, and then if that's true, you talk because I think of your vocation and you understand this, why, why is what you're describing as people lacking breathing room, or if we want to use the term burnout, why is that so common in ministry in particular? You, you mentioned like, so yeah. you got people in churches, Christians are tired, Christians are worn out, but then you talk to their leaders and they're worse. Why, yeah. why do you think that that's so common? Well, I think, you know, so first off, I think um, one of my hopes with the book is to be helpful to people with burnout because it just seems whether you're a pastor or not, I mean, you could be a stay-at-home mom and be burning out, Big time. you know, because people are, they're not sleeping well, they're not eating well, yeah. they're the amount of Americans that are taking sleeping pills just to, just to fall asleep. Um, you know, I, I think almost every American can say, I feel overwhelmed somewhere. Yeah. You know, I feel like I'm on the verge of a breakdown somewhere. And so, um, so I, I think a lot of times if we use the word burnout, people start, you start to go, well, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not burned out, you know, but, um, so we kind of give them an out with yeah. that. But I think within churches and I think within pastors, there's not been um, a very there's not been a lot of conversations about longevity and health. Yeah. And so it's this idea of, well, I'm just going to work and work and, you know, then I'm going to burn out and then I'm going to go on a really long vacation and I'm going to come back and tell you what I learned and yeah. talk about burnout Yeah, and then do it and, again. Instead of, so one of the eye-opening things for us, four years ago, we were with a group of pastors, church planters. There were about 50 in the room with their spouses, and um, half the room was either on sabbatical, going on sabbatical, or had just come off sabbatical. And I thought that was pretty amazing in a room of 50 people. So I just started to ask questions, you know, what led to that? And, you know, how are leaders in their church doing? And of course, you know, well, if they're tired, well, the people in their churches are tired. And so at the same time, I was preaching through Second Timothy. And, you know, at the very end, Paul says, you know, I ran the race, I finished, you know, I kept the faith. And so my wife, Katie, and I started to ask, okay, well, what would it take to get to the end? Um, and I had never thought about that question before. And I feel like it's a really helpful way to phrase it because I feel like it causes us to, to think differently about how we live. Okay. Cause if my goal is to get to the end of leadership, well, I'm going to think about how I eat and sleep differently, yeah. you know, as opposed to, well, I'm just leaving it all in the field and I'm just throwing it all out there. And, and so, um, so I think that's a big part of it. And, um, one of the ironic things, cause I just don't think a lot of churches talk about health. Um, We don't talk about our bodies. We don't talk about body image. We don't talk about what we put into it. Because I mean, it's weird and awkward. It is. I mean, anytime I talk about it with people, you know, they'll look at me now and go, oh, well, you just don't understand, you know, what it's like. And, you know, and, and what can be awkward about it is that most pastors are overweight. Most pastors aren't healthy. Um, there's a study that I reference in the book that if you, the more religious you are, um, statistically, the more overweight you are. Yeah. And you, um, you referenced and, the, the Pew study of 2001 that, that came back with 76% of pastors is either overweight or obese, which yeah. I, I mean, I guess experientially I can observe that, but to actually see the number was pretty shocking. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so you know, I think there's just a lot of, it's just normal. Yeah. 
you know, and I was in shape through college. I played soccer through college. And while I was on staff in my first church, I put on a hundred pounds in a year and a half and no one ever said anything. No one ever said, Hey, you know, you're just everything. Okay. Like, yeah. kind of, no, like no one said a word. Huh. And, um, and it wasn't until my big turning point, especially with my weight was, um, when my brother-in-law, he is a missionary and a pastor, and we were sitting at Starbucks, and he looked at me, and he goes, Josh, how can you challenge people with self-control when you don't have any when it comes to food? Wow. And I just sat there, and I thought, I, I don't know. I, I have no answer for that. And that was really eye-opening just for my heart in that way. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt the conversation, but I wanted to share a simple way that you can help support In The Room. As you know, most weeks I'm talking with someone who's written a book about something. Now, I love books, and I know firsthand how expensive it can be to try to keep up with all the books that you'd like to read, including the ones that you hear about on this show. And this is why I'm so excited about our new partnership with Givingtons.com. Like Amazon, they sell books at discounted rates. But here's what's great for In The Room. When you buy a book through our store, we receive a portion of that sale to help continue bringing great weekly content. So for whatever featured book we're discussing on this week's episode, we receive a full $2. And for books from past episodes, we receive $1.25. Now, you've probably heard me say this before, but I want to help get this podcast to as many people as possible, and I need your help. So will you keep spreading the word on social media, and will you consider buying this week's book through givingtons.com? Just go to givingtons.com slash in the room. There you're going to find not only this episode's book, but books written by past guests as well. So check out our new store at givingtons.com slash in the room. Thanks so much for your help, and now back to the conversation. So when you, I mean, I know you're talking about the book a lot and getting emails from people, but what are some of the common factors that squeeze out breathing room in people's lives? I think just the feeling of expectations that we think other people have for us, you know, we're afraid we're going to miss out on something. So we have to sign up for everything. You know, we're afraid if we say no to something that we're going to hurt somebody's feelings, Um, you know, as well as just the comparison trap that we what the life that we go for is not the life that other people have. It's the life we think they have. Yeah. And so that's what we pursue. And yet we never stop to ask the lives that we're trying to emulate. Are they happy? Right. Like, do we want their lives? So I have a good friend. I mean, he has sold and started businesses all over the place, makes tons of money. Um, he, he is in his early thirties, could retire and never work again. And he is the most miserable guy. Yeah. No, most miserable guy. But yet everybody looks at him and goes, I want his life. Right. And, and so I think some of those things squeeze us out, but I think one of the big things and, um, I think it's incredibly important when you talk about whether it's whether it's debt and whether it's your health, whether it's feeling tired or past hurts, is to ask, why am I in this place? Like, what has led me here? And so I was just talking to a guy yesterday, and he was asking about, um, you know, just struggling with porn or struggling with um, a food addiction. And I asked him, I said, well, wh- when do you turn to food? When? Why is that? And I don't feel like we ask those questions enough yeah. of ourselves. 
Yeah, that's good. I uh, I heard Stephen Furtick one time said <clears throat> that we get to the place that you're describing when we like the the that what we do, especially with social media, is that we're comparing our behind the scenes to everybody else's highlight reel. Yep. And I thought that was a really succinct way to be able to yeah. capture what it is that you're describing, and it is so destructive. Yeah. Um, and one of the things I like about the book is. There's this, I was reading through it yesterday and I kind of felt like it reads like a dashboard. And so it gives readers a checklist, especially the first half of the book where you're kind of going through these various uh, aspects of life. And so it gives a bit of a a checklist for a tune-up to monitor holistic health, to monitor holistic health, which is great because we don't talk very much about holistic health. We talk about like your prayer life and are you, do you have a Bible reading plan, but not so many of these other areas. So I wanted to talk about a couple of them. You have a large section on Sabbath, which I thought was really, really good. So for people that, you know, their understanding of, I mean, the Sabbath is like something that Jewish people did in the Bible. Just what is Sabbath? Why is that so important? Yeah, I mean, Sabbath for me is just this opportunity for you to disconnect from everything you do normally um, and to just, and to, it's that recalibration that you do each week. Um, and so one of the things that, and for us, it's still a growing learning curve. You know, we have five young kids. And, um, so Sabbath for us is not silent, is not, right. you know, sitting on a mountaintop. Yeah. Um, you know, but to ask, you know, if I had 24 hours and at the end of those 24 hours, I wanted to be closer to Jesus and I wanted to be recharged and refueled, what would I do? And most people don't know the answer to that question. Yeah. Most people don't know what they would do with 24 hours. Um, they just think of their to-do list or, um, and so that, that's been a question that we've asked a lot for ourselves and just in our church to say, okay, well, if you had 24 hours, like how would you spend it? You may take a nap. That may be a great way for you to refuel and recharge. You may have a group of friends over, um, to have a long meal. And so, um, for us, we've just tried to say, okay, if we start in the evening and it runs through the next day, how would that day look differently? What would we do? Um, what would we not do? What, you know, how do we disconnect from social media? Um, our kids with electronics, you know, how do we, um, reconnect as a family or with friends? That's good. And I know, I mean, clearly the, your weight loss story has to be one of the things that you talk with people about the most. Um, yeah. it's such an issue it is by far the question I get more. Well, I was going to say I've lost 25 pounds since January And I think that I've had more as a pastor, more conversations with people about that than I have the Bible. Yeah. And I don't know if that means I'm a bad pastor or what, but, (laughs) um, but it's, uh, just, I think just because of the contrast with where we are as a culture that we, that virtually everybody is carrying more weight than they should. We really don't understand food and how we should be eating. So clearly this is something that at least in your own life, you've gotten some handles on seeing, you know, this increase in fitness and, and weight in your own life. Uh, but so tell me about like, just, I know it's not for everybody, but how do you eat and, and how do you exercise? What have you found that works for you? What do you recommend for others? Yeah. Well, I mean, like I said before, when it comes to weight loss, when we first started, um, that journey, I mean, I was 300 pounds when we got married, my wife was a hundred pounds. So she was always very fit and in shape. And people ask, you know, especially with the book, people have come up to her and said, you know, man, like 
you really married a big guy like that. You know, that was really nice of you, you know, like, <laughs> to do that favor yeah. almost, yeah. you know? And, um, and so we went to a doctor and I think this is incredibly helpful. I went to a doctor and said, you know, I want to lose weight. And he said, that is a terrible goal. Yep. He said, do not make that your goal. He said, make being healthy your goal That's good. and find what, find what you can do forever. Yep. And so, um, you know, cause I had watched my family, um, most of my family is, um, overweight. I've, I'd watched them do all kinds of diets and all kinds of lose a hundred pounds and put 120 on and, you know, all the fad diets where you're, you know, calculating your calories and everything. And so for me, I had to one, I had to learn why I went to food and what caused me to overeat. Um, because for me, it it was a heart issue and it was an addiction. It's not for everybody, but for me it was. And so I really had to dive into that and, and really dissect, um, what I was hoping to get out of food. I mean, we call it comfort food for a reason. And so we kind of identify that. Um, but then too, I had to learn how to eat well. I did not know how to eat well. I didn't know how to, um, control portions. I didn't know how to eat real food real well. Um, and so I would go out to restaurants and overeat. And so it's interesting if you go to a restaurant, um, Tom Rath in his book, eat, move, sleep talks about how, um, the first person to order, um, sets the tone for the table. And so I made the conscious decision that anytime I went to a restaurant, I knew what I was going to eat before I arrived. So I could order first. And I wouldn't um, look at the menu and see all the pictures because they don't put pictures of healthy food on there. Right. Um, and so that way I wouldn't go, oh, you know, that person just ordered, you know, 50 chicken wings. You know, maybe I should do that. And right. so um, so now and when I started to exercise, I couldn't run. I couldn't lift weights. I was I had a 42 inch waist and wore a 2XL shirt. So I started biking and I'm very vain. And so I bought very tight spandex. So I'd be embarrassed as people would pull up <laughs> next to me and look over and go, look at that fat guy in spandex. That's what. <laughs> and so, uh, that was very motivating for me. I'm sure. And, um, you know, but as, as I started to lose weight, um, started to learn just more about exercise and, and health. And, um, you know, oftentimes I'll tell people, you know, it took me 18 months to lose 130 pounds, which is pretty fast yeah. when you think about it. Um, and I told a guy the other day, I said, you know, I just learned how to eat and I started moving and he looked at me and he goes, so nothing else, there wasn't anything else. And I was like, no, I literally everybody knows how to do this. Yep. Isn't it amazing though? I've noticed cause I've had, I mean, mine hasn't been nearly as dramatic as yours, but I've been asked that same question and I just have finally realized like people are really, there's a secret that people really yeah. think exists that people who yeah. do get healthier, they've cracked yeah. that code. They figured that out. And, and yeah. any email that I've sent or any counsel I've given, most people walk away so dejected because yeah. they're like, crap, it's what I thought it was. Yeah. That's, that totally sucks. <laughs> Yeah. And so, I mean, one of the big things that I think was, has been helpful is, um, I made exercising and still to this day, um, I scheduled it. Yeah, You know, one of the things that I talk about with a lot of people is that you have all the time to do everything you want to do. That's true. If you don't do it, you don't want you to. don't want to do that. Yeah. I mean, it's the reason you have time to binge on Netflix. Yep. You know, you have all the time to do that. I never miss a Steelers game unless I'm preaching. Right. Because I want to make it happen. So, it's the same with exercise. You know, if you want that to happen, it's going to get scheduled. And for pastors, 
we we tell people, well, if you want to read your Bible, like you got to pick where you're going to do it, when you're going to do it, you know, yep. which chair it's going to be in, you know, are you going to drink coffee or, you know, what are you going to do there? And exercise is the exact same way. It is. Yeah. I've, I've told like one thing that was super helpful for me. There was, there's been two big things. One was really trying to figure out <clears throat> the thing that you said about not making it about weight loss, I think is so important that it's about health and yeah. that was big. But one question for me was figuring out why that even mattered to me. Mm. Um, you know, they talk about the importance of knowing your why. And for me, it had so much to do with trying to have a long-term vision of when my three kids are adults and I have grandkids that I can like still play and yeah. not, you know, be in a wheelchair or yeah. unable to get off the couch. And that has been a big time. I mean, I've thought about that virtually every single workout every yeah. day for the yeah. last year. And then yeah. the other thing was, so it was a, having a long-term vision and then having short-term goals. Yeah. Tied And so for me, it's been, I did a couple Spartan races this year and a 10 K and little things like that. The Spartan race was helpful for me because I was literally afraid I was going to die. And <laughs> so it helped me be motivated. So, yeah. you know, having something like that to do, and I just thought they were so fun. That has been super helpful. Have you done any, anything competitive? You do CrossFit, don't you? I do CrossFit now. Okay. So, um, and I train with guys who, you know, go to the CrossFit games. So yeah. I'm being pushed by them yeah. and one of the things that's been really interesting to me is the self-discipline of getting healthy and how that has bled into other areas of my life. Absolutely. Has been really just an unexpected side benefit. Yep. Um, I was going to ask you about, this is one of the only books on this topic where I've seen a chapter on money and contentment. And so I was wondering what's, what's the, what does contentment have to do with breathing room? What's the connection there? Yeah. Well, I think because one of the big areas that people lack breathing room is their finances. I mean, and we talk about, you know, just trying to make it to the end of the month, you know, we struggle with debt and, you know, there's just not a lot of breathing room in our budgets. And a lot of that has to do with the comparison and contentment and us wishing and hoping that we had a different life or that we were somebody different or we had a different bank account. And so, and for me, um, contentment's a big struggle for me. It's, it, it's hard for me to be content where I am. And, um, you know, I always want to be at the next thing, the next stage in life, you know, the yeah. next rung and, and same with finances. And so, um, to really just help, uh, you know, to really just help people say, yeah, like I, cause it's, I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the first part of the book comes out of what most people make for new year's resolutions. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, I just looked, I just Googled them and you know, I was like, well, yeah, I mean, those were the ones I was planning to talk about right. and, you know, okay. weight, finances, schedule. Yeah. So, yeah. One of the things I thought was interesting about the way that you laid the book out was that you do start with these practical things that everybody's trying to change. And then you move from there toward in the back half, dealing with some of the spiritual issues that are underneath them. And so the back half of the book deals with sin and idolatry and repentance and trusting Christ and the gospel. And so for someone, as we kind of wrap up this part, for someone who feels like they're right on the verge or in the midst of having no more breathing room in their life, where do they start? How would you encourage them? What would you say to them? Yeah. I mean, I would just encourage them to, to start to ask some of the why questions, you know, why, why are you unhappy? Why do you feel like you were run down? 
you know, you got to where you are for a certain reason. Um, and oftentimes those, those reasons come from our family of origin. You know, they come from our past. They come from things we pretend didn't happen or like to think didn't happen. And, um, and, and so to continue digging into that, um, to, to really understand, you know, you're working so much, you know, who are you trying to impress? Yeah. And oftentimes it's, somebody from your past. It's some, it, you know, it's a father, it, you know, it's a sibling you're comparing yourself to and, and, you know, and getting to that place where you say, you know what, like I can let go of this and Jesus can redeem this. Um, and not only can he, he has. And I, I think one of our big struggles is we're just not willing to believe he will. Yeah. That's good. You know, and so I had a mentor tell me right after I became a Christian, and I didn't understand this at the beginning when I was in college, but he said to me, he goes, Josh, he said, most followers of Jesus do not understand the level of freedom that they have in Jesus. Yeah, that's good. You know, one of the, I I had put on Instagram that I was going to be having a conversation with you, and I don't know if you saw, but one of the questions that came in, I thought was a really good one about how basically in the midst of trying to be healthy in all these areas of life, how do you fight discouragement in the midst of that? It not change it. Like how, how do you not basically lose your mind in the midst of the pursuit of trying to get healthy? I thought that was a fair yeah. question that a lot of people would struggle yeah. with struggle with. So what do you have to say about that? I mean, I look in the mirror every day and see a 300 pound guy. Yeah. I mean, it is, um, still there. You know, I texted my wife the other day. I was, I showed up at our CrossFit box and I texted her and I said, I feel eight pounds overweight right now. Yeah. And, um, you know, those are just, um, those are old wounds that you battle every single day. Um, those are old things that, that you fight with. And the more you get, um, the more you take those steps, I, I, I think discouragement doesn't really change. You know, it, it's one of the, it's one of the most powerful tools that, that Satan uses against us. Mm-hmm. is discouragement. Um, but that's where for me, it's just clinging to those truths of, uh, of who I am in Christ, you know, what my identity is, um, just to really battle those. I, I realize that sounds so Christian and, and cliche. Um, but sometimes but cliches are cliches cause they're true as well. Yeah. And it's just, it is, it's for me, it is just true. Yeah. And to just remind myself, um, no, like this has changed in my life. Yeah. Was it, um, was it hard for, this is a personal question, but was it, what was it like opening up about, I mean, you, you write about what for most people would be the most painful parts of their life. And you write a lot of your own story into it. Was that uncomfortable or difficult for you? No, I, because for me, um, we've really built our church around just this desire of this is who we are. Like this is, this is who we are and this is what we've been redeemed from. And the thing that, that we'll often tell people, Katie and I will tell people when we meet with them is if you can't talk about it, you've not faced it. Yeah. That's a good one. And you've not, you've not seen how God is redeeming that. Yep. And, um, and two, getting to a place kind of the step past that is being able to see how God wants to use that. And so when we were going through those eight years of waiting to plant a church and everything was rough, um, I read this great book by Reggie McNeil called A Work of Heart. And he said that everybody who God uses greatly in the Bible goes through a desert. Yep. And no one, no one got through life without the desert. 
you know, even Jesus got it. And, and he said, you know, on the other side of it, no one would want to relive it, but no one would want to move forward without it. Yeah. That's and, good. and I feel like that's been really true for us. And so we've just tried to see, okay, well, how, how, how does God want to use the hurt we've walked through some of the stupid things I've done, um, you know, and, and how can that help people? And so, you know, I, in some regards, it's, it's weird when you meet somebody and, and they know your life story and the ins and outs and they just out of the blue say, Oh, you know, tell me about this, you know, when you were 10 and yeah, right. you know, in some regards that's weird, but at the same time it, it tells people, Hey, it's okay to talk about this. It's okay to talk about the fact that you've struggled with weight your whole life. It's okay to say, you know, I've, I have this porn addiction and I don't know what to do. Yeah. And it's okay to admit, no, like I really don't want to forgive that person who hurt me. Like it hurts real bad. Like it's okay to say that and struggle with that. And I feel like in churches, we don't do a very good job of saying it's okay to say, man, I'm really just messed up right now. Yep. It's true, man. Well, you did a great job of modeling that through the book. And I think a lot of people will be encouraged by that. I want to finish up with just some random questions, no particular order, just life stuff. Uh, So for context for this first question, you're a pastor, uh, Revolution Church. Uh, What size is the church right now? Uh, we're about 300. Okay. So, yeah. uh, just cause that matters with the answer to this next sure. question, but so what does the ideal week look like for you right now? Even though I know there's no such thing, but if there sure. was, what would the ideal week look like for you? Yeah. I mean, you know, so just as far as like when I do stuff, or, exactly. Like, like yeah. where, where does sermon prep live? You know, actually you talk a lot about having to move things around in the book. So what is, what is, what is the average week? Five kids, a wife, like what is, how do you get through all that? Yeah. So, I mean, a big part of our life in church is based off of one of the mantras in the book of every time you say yes to something, you say no to something else. And, um, and that's positive and negative. And so we've really tried to say, okay, what do we want to say yes to? And so, um, so for us, I mean, that meant, um, for our ministry, we, we homeschool our kids, Um, and we, um, we did that strategically just to be able to control our calendar as a family, um, and to be able to dictate the things that we did in the places that we were. And so, so that's a big part of our week that impacts things. But for me, sermon prep happens in the mornings. Um, it's when I'm the freshest. I, I typically, uh, Katie and I are, we try to be up by five, um, just to get going. It's, that's when she has quiet before the kids get up. And, um, and, and I find that I'm able to get a whole lot done before 10 a.m. in that way. Um, the rest of the day then is, is meetings, is, is being with people, is strategic stuff, is counseling people, um, spending time with leaders, developing leaders. Um, when do you work out? So I work out in uh, the afternoons of Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday. And so uh, for each of our staff members, uh, one of their role responsibilities is to live a vibrant, healthy lifestyle. And so we just think that's a spiritual discipline of how for you to have longevity. We don't tell them what to do. I'm the only one who does CrossFit. So um, we don't dictate what they do. But I kept reading all these business books where companies were paying for people to go to gyms and work out. And I thought, you know we should figure that out as a church. You know, we should tell people this is important. So, um, 
And so I work out in the afternoons and then the evenings. I mean, we lead a community group in our house. Uh, we Because it's beautiful in Arizona most of the year, we try to spend a lot of time out, out front yeah. with our neighbors playing games you know, as a family. And yeah, right now I'm teaching my boys football and how to throw a football. And, um, and so that's, that's a lot of what we do with five kids. We have a weekly date night, so we are blessed to have my parents live a mile from us. Oh, so, uh, we get to have that, which is, which is really, really nice. <laughs> yeah. If you were going to recommend, uh, one couple books on, on diet, fitness, that kind of thing, what have been the most helpful books for you? Yeah. Um, you know, I have not read a lot of books on diet and fitness, ironically. How did you, what, then what was your process for learning about like how to eat and, and how did you end up in CrossFit? Yeah. So I, um, learning how to eat, I just started reading blogs like men's health and things like that. Okay. Learning, you know, they have blogs on, you know, how to eat when you travel, when yep. you go out to eat and stuff. Um, and like I said, my, my wife, Katie was just always very healthy. I just did not, um, practice that outside of our house. And, um, you know, in fact, this is one of the most embarrassing things that I said to her when we first got married, I told her, I said, you know, if you would cook more healthy foods, I would lose weight. And so I made it her <laughs> fault, um, which did not go well. Yeah, I'm sure not. And, um, you know, so just starting to learn a lot of that stuff. And, uh, about three years ago, I discovered I have celiac. And so, um, after losing all the weight, I found out that I can't have that. I can't have wheat and bread. So, um, which is kind of helpful actually. It is. So, yeah. Yeah. You know. In that sense. And then did you just stumble on into CrossFit or did somebody turn you on to that? There, I mean, no, CrossFitters so I, are pretty uh, vocal about their thing. So yeah, no, I, um, I didn't, I started biking and then I wanted to start uh, lifting weights. And so I found this book from men's health called huge in a hurry. Okay. And it just has a, it had a meal plan in it, it had a weightlifting plan in it. And so for me, it was just helpful because it taught me how to lift and how to eat yeah. when I lift. And, um, and so then I was just talking to a guy at the, at the YMCA the one day and he was like, I used to try CrossFit and I had never really heard of it. And so I started doing CrossFit on my own for about two and a half years. We built everything out in our garage to be able to do it before we actually started going somewhere to do it. So cool. Well, what book outside the Bible has made the greatest impact on you? Yeah. Outside the Bible. I mean, um, Ironically, it's one that I refer to all the time is um, John Maxwell's 21 Laws of Leadership. Yeah, that's a great book. I feel like, I feel like it, it applies to so many things, totally um, does. especially the law of the lid. Yep. Um, I feel like I refer to that on an almost weekly basis um, with somebody. Yeah. And so that's, um, that's been a big influence for sure. Yeah. What's one thing that you'd like to see more of in the church these days? Big C church, not just yours. Yeah, I think, especially, I'll say this with church planting networks, I would like to see more conversations around the health of the pastor and his wife. And um, because one of the saddest things is watching people burn out and watching people fail morally. And, and most of the failures have very little to do with their theology. Yeah. And it has more to do with their heart and how it's getting played out. And I don't feel like we talk enough about about just health and longevity and how she's doing in her role. And I think um, 
one of the things that I've started to notice with a lot of pastors who are burning out is it's not so much the physical toll of ministry as much as they just don't know what to do with the emotional side of ministry. Yeah. They don't know what to do with their own heart and hurt, and they don't know what to do with the stuff that gets dumped on them from other people in conversations, and, um, and they have nowhere to go with it. Yeah. And so to learn how you do that. Yeah, that's good. Last question, uh, who is someone that you most admire and why? And maybe someone that would be like, so not Jesus, okay? We'll just assume yeah. that you're a Christian yeah. and a pastor. <laughs> and uh, so someone that might be surprising, but somebody that you admire and why? I mean, I've always told people around me I would spend like $1,000 to like sit in a room with Andy Stanley for eight hours yeah. and just ask him questions. Yeah. I just always sit back at his leadership stuff and I'm blown away at what he knows. Yeah. Um, so that would for sure be somebody uh, I admire. Yeah. Yeah. He's a pretty insightful guy. Well, Josh, the book is, is really, really good. Going to be, I think a lifesaver, uh, literally for a lot of people. So we'll help, uh, push it as much as we can. Thanks for having the courage and the humility to open up about your own life and your own journey and, uh, praying for you for revolution and, uh, that this book would go far and wide. So thanks so much for your time today. Hey, thanks for having me, Ryan. My thanks to Josh for taking the time to chat. And as always, I especially want to say thanks to you for taking the time to listen. As always, I hope you found it helpful. I'd love to hear your feedback about this episode. So drop me an email at ryan at redemptionbc.org and let me know what you thought. And don't forget, you can stop by my blog at ryanhugley.com. That's H-U-G-U-L-E-Y for all the ways that you and I can stay connected via Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You'll also find any additional show notes that you may want from today's episode. Until next week, I counted an honor to learn with you. I love you and thanks for listening.